this morning, Lord, I pray that our minds and our hearts are free as we look at Malachi and that we are simply able to receive what it is you have for each one of us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Malachi 2 this morning, verses 1 through 9. Before we get there, though, a few things following up or or getting us back into Malachi 2. You remember when we started this series, we talked about actually before we started the book of Malachi that we wanted to live counterculture lives. We looked at a bunch of statistics that showed that those who go to church on Sunday, those who call themselves Christians, generally don't live life differently in significant ways than anyone else. And that we wanted to make it our determination in 2006 to be like the salmon who's swimming upstream, not like the dead bloated fish being carried on the waves downstream. We wanted to live counterculture lives. And then we saw in the first five verses of Malachi two weeks ago that everything that God indicts the nation for, do you remember it came back to one thing and one thing only? It came back to the fact that they didn't love God the way they should have. And you remember that God had said Israel was like his wife, his bride, and God had, as it were, married them. He was in this covenant with them. And that Israel was like an unfaithful wife. And that everything that follows in this discourse in Malachi, and you remember we said it's a little bit like a court case in which God levels a charge, Israel says something back, and then God explains the ways in which Israel has been deficient, lived deficient. But he brings up one thing after another, but they all came back to this aspect that they didn't love God the way they should have. And you remember the first specific indictment he said was related to the priest. You remember what they were doing? They were bringing to the altar to sacrifice to God, who's the high king of the universe. They were bringing the diseased, the maimed, the blind animals. Do you remember they were bringing to God their worst, their cast-offs, their leftovers instead of their first and their best? God said this was a problem. Um, This morning's passage, he'll talk to the priests again. It's related to a different issue, and I suppose the application will look a little differently too. But before we get there, let me say this. In the readings I was doing at the end of 2005, the books I was reading, the scriptures I was in, I was convinced that Malachi was a great book to use by way of calling us back to first things, uh, important things, just as Malachi did to Israel in the Old Testament. It's It's possible, though, when you go through a book like this, it's possible to feel like you're being hit over the head week after week because God is bringing a charge. And you may may listen to this and you may think, I'm tired of hearing charges. And I would just say this. On any given Sunday, and we're in chapter 2, it's a short book. It goes through, I think, chapter 4, 6 verses in chapter 4, but it's short. We'll be over in about four weeks. But if you come on any particular week and you feel like the hammer's hitting the anvil again uh, and it doesn't apply to you, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. We were talking in men's group uh, Saturday morning. John Wimber was a a key leader in the church in the 80s and one of the things he was noted for saying was when he eats chicken breast, he leaves the bone. You may hear things that you don't need to eat. They're not for you. You leave them to the side and don't worry about it. So in any of this, and this is true any Sunday, and this is why when I pray, I say take home no more and no less than God wants for us. That's Jesus' prayer 
in the, for the churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And each one of us needs to exercise that same discernment, no matter what we're hearing here or anyplace else. What is it that God's saying to me? If God's not addressing me on this issue, don't worry about it. Go on down the road. If he is, at least ask the question, Lord, what do you have, if anything, for me out of this message? So if the hammer's not hitting your anvil, that's okay. That's okay. We're in Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. I'll get some coffee there or something to drink. I'm going to make some comments as I go through this just to clarify so that I can just focus on the main points afterwards. Malachi 2, verses 1 through 9. Now, this admonition is for you, O priests. If you don't listen and if you don't set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord, Lord, all caps, is Yahweh, God's covenant name, says Yahweh Almighty, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them because you have not set your heart to honor me. The indictments God brings are specific. And in these ones to the priests, they touch on things specific to the priests. When God says, I will curse your blessings, remember that it's the priesthood that's supposed to be able to bless the nation. If you go back to Deuteronomy 27, when the covenant of God with Israel was renewed when they entered the land, you remember on Mount Sinai when they come out of Egypt, God gives them the covenant, the law. But then almost 40 years later, when they're getting ready to go into the land, he renews the covenant. And the priests with five tribes stand on Mount Gerizim in Israel on the west side of the Jordan. And the other six tribes are on the east side of the Jordan on the mountain whose name escapes me. Anyway, the priests pronounce the blessings on the nation under the Mosaic covenant for obedience. So right from the very beginning, the priests stood and pronounced God's blessing on Israel when they obeyed. The priests were meant to be the tribe that blessed Israel. Or when you look in number six, one of the best known prayers or blessings in the Bible, the Levitical priesthood was supposed to use to bless Israel. Do you remember the Lord bless you and keep you? The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. This was a prescribed blessing that the priests, the Levites, were supposed to bless the nation with. So here's the group in Israel that's uniquely called to speak blessings to the nation. God says, when you bless, I will curse. When you bless, when you're doing what I originally gave you to do, I'm not going to bless. I'm going to curse even your blessings. I think he's angry about something. He says, because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. Now, if you read in Deuteronomy 33, God had chosen to say that if someone rose up against the priesthood, against the tribe of Levi, God would curse their descendants. So now he turns around in his anger and he says, I'm not going to curse the descendants of your enemy. I'm going to curse your descendants. Then he continues and he says, by the way, this gets worse. This is very graphic and it's meant to be. This shows God's displeasure. He says, not only that, I will spread on your faces the offal from your festival sacrifices and you will be carried off with it. Offal is an interesting word. This is an old English kind of word. Your Bible might say refuse or waste, or something like this. When God says this, he's, he's being gross because of gross behavior. So, offal 
is the intestines and everything that's in them, in the animal. So do you get the picture? God says, I'm going to take the excrement in that animal and I'm going to smear it on your face. This is down and dirty. This is grotesque and meant to be so. And remember this. When someone brought an animal for sacrifice to the temple, what happened? You know, they come up, the animal's accepted by the priest for the person, and they would slay the animal, slit its throat, take the blood, pour it on the altar, splash it out at the base of the altar. What they do with the animal? Uh, if any of you are hunters, you know this, Gail. You know, you field dress a deer, you open it up, and what do you do with that stuff? If you're in the field, you leave it for the coyotes, this nasty-smelling stuff that you don't want. You don't take that home. Well, when these animals were sacrificed at the temple, they didn't sacrifice this part either. They set it to the side, and then it was taken outside Jerusalem and burned. So this is what God says. I'm so ticked with you guys. First, I'm going to smear this nasty stuff on your face. And then you, like the offal in the intestines, you're just waste that I'm going to carry outside the city and have consumed on that fire. That's what I think of you. This is down and dirty. It's offensive. It's meant to be so. God is emotional. He's upset. And he's letting them know in the basest, most graphic way he can, he's not pleased. Uh, Verse 4, he says, You'll know that I have sent you this admonition so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord, or Yahweh Almighty. And I'm winding my comments down in my reading here. But as nasty and as graphic and as uh, emotionally overflowing as God is about uh, his negative feelings towards these guys, he says that he's admonishing them so that his covenant with them can continue. In other words, he's not just trying to write them off. He's actually saying, I'm telling you these things because I want to be able to fulfill the covenant I made with you, with the Levites. Verse 5, my covenant was with him, Levi, a covenant of life and peace. I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. He turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge, and from his mouth men should seek instruction, because he is the Malachi, he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty, So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. You remember when we opened Malachi, we said God's in covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. So this is a special, unique relationship. Well, here he's saying with Levi, with the priesthood, he also says not only is Israel among the nations in special covenant with me, but among the tribes of Israel, Levi it is in a special covenant relationship with me. He singled out the tribe of Levi. So in Deuteronomy 33, 8, Moses is speaking of Levi to God. He says this, Levi, the priesthood, watched over your word and guarded your covenant. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Bless all his skills, O Lord. Be pleased with the work of his hands 
smite the loins or the children, descendants of those who rise up against him, strike his foes till they rise no more. This was the blessing God pronounced as part of the covenant of God with the tribe of Levi. Now, do you remember in chapter 1 we said when God talked about Jacob and Esau, he wasn't just talking about twin brothers. He was talking about the nations that came from them. He was talking about Israel and Edom. Well, here, when God talks about this covenant with Levi, he actually appears to be specifically referring to a covenant he made with Phinehas, a descendant of Levi, and this covenant was made in Numbers 25. You can turn there if you want. I'll spend just a brief amount of time here. But in Numbers 25, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, there's your name, Aaron, you're well named. Aaron the priest has turned my anger away from the Israelites. He was zealous as I am for my honor among them, so that in my zeal I did not put an end to them. Therefore tell him I am making my covenant of peace with him. He and his descendants will have a covenant of a lasting priesthood because he was zealous for the honor of his God and made atonement for the Israelites. I've not read all of this passage, but the picture is this. Balaam was a prophet around the area of Moab. And if you guys, if you're looking at a map, you remember Egypt down here. Uh, let's see if I'm oriented for you. Egypt down here, Israel up here. When Israel leaves Egypt, they come up around the south area of Israel and they're coming around the east side of the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And to get up to cross the Jordan, they're around Jericho where they need to come through. They've got to go through the land of Moab. The Moabite king Balak knows that this is trouble. It's a huge nation coming out of Egypt. He also knows that this God, this God that's foreign to him, has decimated Egypt in bringing this people out. Now they're headed for his border. So he hires a prophet named Balaam to curse Israel, to speak a curse that will keep Israel from coming through his land or from destroying him. So Balaam comes, and I won't go into all of this, but Balaam comes and he can't curse Israel because God won't let him. Each time he opens his mouth to curse, he actually speaks a blessing instead. But Balak wants to pay him a lot of money, and Balaam, in the end, is willing to help him achieve his goals. And so he says, listen, this is the deal. I can't curse this nation for you. Their God won't let me. But this is what you could do. You could have your daughters, your women, invite their sons to come to worship our God. You could undermine their God. You could undermine their purpose and their mission. And all you need to do is send your well-dressed, attractive young gals to go round up those young Jewish boys, and you'll bring them into Moab. They won't destroy you. You'll destroy them from within, as it were. And so, many of the Jewish men did go with the Moabite women, and they went and they worshipped the god of Moab, Baal. God was not pleased. God sent a plague on the nation of Israel to discipline them because of this. And while the plague is raging, and while the nation is repenting before God at the Ark of the Covenant in the Tent of Meeting, this Jewish man runs through with this Moabite woman. 
In other words, the thing that's causing the death and the destruction and the thing the nation corporately with Moses is lamenting, it's in their face through this Jewish man and this Moabite woman. Phineas, the text says, filled with zeal for God's honor, he slays this Jewish man and this Moabite woman. And the plague of God stops. And it was because Phineas was zealous for God's honor that God said, I make this covenant of peace with you and with your descendants. Phineas cared about me and my honor, God says, I'm going to bless him and his descendants with a special promise, a special relationship. And this is what Malachi is referring to. It goes back to Phineas. By the way, uh, we're not taking spears and slaying uh, the enemies of God today. We, the judgment is God's, and, and that's not what we're about. Israel in this day was an instrument of God to judge the nations as they went into the land of Palestine. But this is what the covenant Malachi seems to specifically be referring to is about. Now, just do this checklist of comparison between Levi and Orphineus and the priests of Malachi's day, Okay the priest of Phineas and the priest in Malachi's day, what was true of them? This says that Phineas revered God. It says the priest of Malachi's day turned aside from God. Phineas turned others away from sin. The priests in Malachi's day have caused others to sin. Of Phineas and Levi, it was said there was no unrighteousness in them. Now, this doesn't mean they're perfect or without moral culpability, but that they lived consistent with God's character and demands. The priests of Malachi's day corrupted the covenant God had with them. There was, let's see, gave true instruction. Phineas and Levi gave true instruction, and these priests showed partiality and judgment. When people came to them for judgment, as was often the case, they were susceptible to bribes. They would do whatever was in their own best interest. They had turned their eyes from justice. God promised a covenant of life and peace with Levi and Phineas, And related to these current priests, God said he would curse even their blessing. He would rebuke their children. God would publicly dishonor them. And they would be despised and abased. And this is the same group at a different time. So, these priests, the priesthood during Malachi's day, the priests as leaders of the nation were meant to be a blessing and they'd become a curse instead. They were meant to instruct others in right living, but they caused others to sin both by what they taught and by their example. They were meant to publicly lead in honoring and worshiping God, but they had disgraced His name instead. They had inherited a covenant of life and peace from their godly ancestors. They passed on shame and rebuke to their own children. This is the group that Malachi, or God is addressing through Malachi. It's not a pretty picture. You remember when we brought up this whole issue of living counterculture a few weeks ago, we said that the church today doesn't look much different than the world around us, at least in important or large and meaningful ways. And unfortunately today, uh, the leadership in Christ's church may not look much different than the priests did in Malachi's day. And just listen to a few things and see if you don't agree. Um, a practicing homosexual has been ordained as one of the key leaders in a mainline American denominational church. This occurred last year. You can Many church leaders and many churches today that call themselves Christian no longer recognize the authority, the accuracy, or the integrity of the Scriptures, God's Word. 
Many in church leadership today no longer teach that we are, we meaning all of us, are morally deficient and in need of a redeemer and redemption. I was at an evangelical conference a year and a half ago in which a paper was read by an important theological leader in a mainline denomination whose paper was Christ did not rise physically from the grave. In many quarters in what's called the Christian church today, leaders by omission and commission have not set their hearts to honor Christ. You remember that's the, that's the key indictment to the priesthood. They don't stand in awe and reverence of God. They don't share words of truth and life or faith and repentance. And they lead others astray in both teaching and example. And this is true. Uh, this is rampant. This is all over. It's no wonder that the church doesn't look much different than the culture because the church's leaders look like the priests did in Malachi's day. There's a reason, you know, when you read the Gospels, you remember who Jesus' most scathing words are always reserved for? Always. There's no exception. It's for the religious leaders. No exception. Always the case. Matthew 23, Jesus goes through this series of woes, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, the religious leaders in place when he walked on the earth, He says, you hypocrites, you shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You should be seeing people. You should be welcoming people into the kingdom of heaven. You're shutting the door on their face. You're keeping them out. You yourselves don't enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He says, you travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and he becomes one. You make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. In other words, those who follow you, they aren't brought closer to God. They're they're led further away from him through you. Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, religious leaders. You tithe insignificant things out of your garden, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. He says you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Leaders, we mentioned this before, if there's a fault and God brings an indictment, he always goes to the responsible parties first. He goes to the person in charge. Jesus says in Luke 12, 48, To everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In other words, the more that God has given me, the more that God has entrusted to me, the more I have to answer for. And this isn't hard to figure out. You remember in the parables in which Jesus says, the Lord of the household leaves, and what does he do before he leaves? He entrusts his servants, his stewards, with responsibilities. And then they understand the the Lord or the master will be gone for a time, and then he'll come back. And then the question is, he'll ask them, did you discharge your responsibilities to me while I was gone? Were you responsible with the things I gave you? You know, some parables say that means you've got to be ready. Don't go to sleep morally or spiritually. Be ready because you don't know when the Lord will come back. You don't know when you'll have to give an account. And the other thing was, the other key important point was, did you invest? Did you take the thing that your master entrusted to you and did you faithfully use it? So the other parables are about, the steward says, you gave me five and I've made five more. I was responsible. I I took the things you entrusted with to me and I've invested them and I've made more for you. I've got to be able to give an account. That's the thought. Well, to leaders, leaders have been given positions of responsibility. 
They'd been entrusted with much. And so Jesus says they must answer for much. This is also why James says, James 3, not many of you should become teachers because you know that as a teacher you will be judged more strictly. This is a really encouraging thing for me to think about and share. The the thoughts are the same, though. Those who've been entrusted with much in the way of knowledge, they have much to be accountable for. So related to those who lead the church, they are responsible for much, so they will answer for much. And this is why in the Gospels, Jesus is most scathing towards the leaders. And it's why in Malachi, it's why God is so blunt and so gross, if you will, in his description of what his thoughts are towards these leaders. It's because they have much to answer for. In applying this, not all of us in here are church leaders. There's something for all of us to apply. Let, let me start with this. Um, I would sure covet uh, your prayers for me and for the others in this church who are responsible for leadership, Brad Runyon, John Hunt, and Sean Schwinson specifically. Also for those who lead worship, Joe McRoy and Dan Billen, uh, that you'd simply pray. You don't have to pray Uh, I've got one friend I've known for many years who says, every time I see him, he says, well, I pray for you every day. I'm like, wow. If I pray for my family every day, I'm doing well. But uh, I don't ask even that you do it every day. But when you think of church leaders in Lion and Lamb, that you just pray for us. Pray that that the Lord helps us keep short accounts with him and that we don't blow it. And by the way, you know everybody blows it. It's not that any of us are perfect. There's no thought about that. Ask my family. Ask my friends. Uh, All of us blow it. That's not the thing. But that we would continue to make it our goal to honor Christ. Because that will keep us from the other things. That you'd pray for those who have leadership in the church that we would make it our goal to honor Christ. And then we're basing our life on that decision. And all of us can ask ourselves this question. Have we made it our goal to honor the Lord? And specifically... First, in speaking the truth, you know as Christians, all of us, and and all of us, you don't have to be a church leader. If you're a Christian in the United States, you have the Bible. I I bet any one of us here have multiple copies of the Bible in our house. We have been entrusted with much. We have God's Word, Old Testament, New Testament, available to us 24-7. That's a big thing, and we have much to to answer for just in having God's Word. This verse 7, this is a great memory verse. If you haven't memorized it, I would encourage you to. The lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction for his mouth. From his mouth he's a spokesman of the Lord of hosts. Christians are meant to have the truth and we're supposed to be able to give that to others. I've really been encouraged. Toby has shared in the past, co-workers of Toby knew he was a Christian. So you know what they would do when they had an issue in their life or a question or a chaos or a confusion? They'd go to Toby and ask him for his input because they knew Toby was a Christian. Now imagine if Toby hasn't been reading his Bible. Toby who loves to read in Proverbs. Imagine if he hadn't been in there, hadn't absorbed or made the scriptures, the truth in the scriptures available to himself. If he hadn't, he wouldn't have anything to share. See, all of us again... In the New Covenant, unlike the Old, all of us are priests. And that means that we not only offer worship to God, but it also means that we represent God to others. And in that case, all of us should know enough of the Scriptures that we can share that with others, either because they have a need and a question, 
or because we see something in their life. And by the way, I'm not talking about banging others over the head. Uh, you know, <clears throat> people value the things that they value, not necessarily what you value. And you and I can oftentimes give our opinion and it's of little value because they didn't want it in the first place. But when you sense that someone's open to what you have to share or when they ask you a question, we should have something to share with them from the scriptures. We should have these words of life as priests of the new covenant. And then also in our examples, have we made it our determination to honor God by the way we live? Remember, God is upset in part because the priests have dishonored his name. Those who should lead in honoring and glorifying God had actually brought shame to his name. And you know that when we live just like the world around us, we do not honor God's name. But we should. And so for you and I, part of loving God is the dedication, it's the determination to honor him. And that means it affects the way we live. It affects the things we choose to do and the things we choose to avoid. Have we made it our determination to honor God both in the words that we have available to share with others and also just the example that we're leading for those around us? Do your neighbors know you're a Christian? And There's no, uh, I don't know if all my neighbors know I'm a Christian. You know, we try and have meaningful conversations. But the example of your life when other people, if they heard you were a Christian, would they be surprised? Maybe that's a good way to put it. Would they be surprised? Or if you share the gospel with your neighbors, is it consistent with the lifestyle you're leading? You see, this is what it gets down to. But this all flows from a determination to say to God, Lord, I want to honor you. This is being a Phineas. You don't have to be named Phineas to be a Phineas at heart. That I want to be zealous, Lord, about honoring you. Be careful also thinking about application, be careful about those you choose as mentors, those you choose to follow, those you choose as leaders. You know, there's another verse in Luke that says, every student or disciple when he's fully trained is what? Is like his teacher. The truth is, whether you realize it or not, you become like the people you hang out with. Absolutely. This is why the scripture talks about being careful of your associations I can't remember if it's the end of 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Bad company corrupts good morals. You become like the people around you. This is most specifically true of the people that are your leaders. This is why, you know, when you go to college, you've got to be so careful. If you're in high school, you've got to be so careful. Because you have a natural tendency that you want to emulate the teachers that you like. And you've got to be really careful about this. Or the church you go to, lion and lamb, no exception. Or the people you work with, whatever avenue you have people you look up to, you've got to be careful. Because the scripture says you become like those you follow. This would be true in the movies you watch, the music you listen. Who do you idolize? That's who you're becoming like. So you have to be really careful about who you follow, who are your mentors, who are your leaders, who are your teachers, spiritually, certainly, but in other avenues of life as well, you'll become like them. Years ago, I was in a setting in which I had the opportunity to take a class which I wanted to take. Uh, it would have been helpful to me. But I looked at the teachers and I said, I don't want to be like them. 
so I didn't take the class. Biblically, information isn't just this computer stuff on a screen, impersonal. Information is personal and is personally transmitted. And this means that it's a reminder that the information you get is more than that when it comes from another person. You become like those who mentor you or whom you look up to. So you have to be careful about who you look up to, who are your leaders and mentors. And again, just winding down with, have we intentionally decided to honor God? Jesus says this in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's the kind of example or testimony we should be leaving. That people would look at our lives and honor God. Now, everyone won't, certainly in this lifetime. But the thought is, would our testimony and would our life, our example, be consistent with the gospel? Would it show, would it reflect honor for God? Remembering that this all ties back to loving God, let me end with this. We love God best when we make it our mission to honor Him, when we care enough to preserve knowledge, His Word, when we conduct ourselves in such a way that others are drawn to Christ and righteousness and not turned away. Let's pray. Lord, you are the ultimate example for any and all of us. Lord, help us aspire to be like you. Lord Jesus, I pray that each one of us would start our days in your word, seeing you, that we would idolize you, that we would see you, that we would sit down with you, that we would talk to you in prayer each morning, pour our heart out, the things that are our concerns, and that, Lord, we would listen to you in your word, and we would be like these priests for others who know what you've said and can share that with others. Father, help us also be priests in simply offering you our lives as those who are determined to honor you. Lord, this affects what we do, what we say, where we go, where we don't go what we don't do. Lord, this really divides our life. Help us to be as intentional as Phineas was about being zealous for your name, zealous for your honor. Lord, help us to love you by dedicating our lives to show you honor, to being helpful to others, and to living life the way Jesus said, so that men might see those good works and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.